Welcome to the Total Soccer Show, an hour review of Saturday's 2022 World Cup quarterfinals. Now, we're going to get to the action shortly, but first, we wanted to take a moment to talk about some tragic news the US soccer community received last night, as we recalled in the passing of Grant Wall. Uh, he was a friend of the show, he was a friend of ours, and his work, as you all know, did so much to elevate the status of the beautiful game in the United States. Now, the quality of his work, it speaks for itself, but for me and the TSS group and countless others, it was the quality of his character, it was the quality of his kindness, it was the quality of his compassion that truly shone through. Now, it's been a very strange day, but the internet today has been full of stories from countless people of his kindness, of his helping colleagues and friends when he didn't have to and when most people wouldn't. Uh, and that's something I've certainly experienced firsthand from him as well. So I feel a loss to the game, but mostly the loss to the community of a thoroughly decent and selfless person. We we saw tributes in the press box during the uh, England-France game on today's broadcast and some very emotional tributes on the broadcast itself today it's been it's been a taylor rockwell it's been a very tough day it really has uh when the news broke last night it it felt like it couldn't be real it couldn't possibly be real grant is a great guy he was 48 he was young and fit and very vibrant and and i really hoped that it was a a, a very like horrific hoax uh in the end that was not to be and so i found myself today like it, it's just one of those things that keeps kind of coming back even when you're like playing with my daughter or watching soccer, eating pizza. It's like all these happy moments. And then it just keeps coming back that here's this person who meant so much to so many people who, who isn't with us anymore. And Grant is a guy who got me into like wanting to cover soccer. I, I remember reading the Beckham experiment and it was this sort of, sort of salacious tale of the LA galaxy and why it wasn't working with David Beckham. It obviously did then go on to work, but it was a sort of insight into you can cover soccer, but make it interesting and make it approachable. And I remember getting to meet Grant for the first time in the lead up to the 2010 World Cup. And I sort of like very hesitantly handed him a business card because I thought like, that's how you get your foot in the door. And he was very gracious and very kind. And he has always been that. Uh, when he left Sports Illustrated, we had the uh, the privilege of working with him uh, and helping him launch uh, uh, football with Grant Wall um, for a little while. He obviously he obviously could handle things himself and, and did. But in that time, he was just so generous, so grateful, so I don't know, just uh, interesting to talk to. Had so many experiences, and when uh, our late co-host Daryl Grove passed away. He was also one of the people who just kind of consistently was, let me know if there's anything I can do. How can I help? Do you want me to jump in? Uh, like just volunteered his time and his effort. Uh, and then was a person who would check in uh, about Daryl and about me and how I was doing. On the year anniversary of Daryl's death, he, he messaged to check in on me. And, and that was just the kind of guy he was. He cared a lot about the sport, but he cared a lot about the people involved in the sport. And it's, it's just a very, a very sad thing. It leaves a hole in in U.S. soccer and U.S. soccer coverage. And it's a hole that I didn't think would be vacant for many, many, many years. And I, and I think that's for me who knew him sort of peripherally for people who covered the game with him for decades at this point. I can't imagine how they're still going on to cover the tournament in Qatar and, and how they're processing it and getting through it. I hope that they are uh, safe and healthy and able to get some sleep uh, and able to get some rest and able to work through it and process it to the best they can. And and I hope that people just continue to honor his memory and everything he did because he meant a lot and, and he will definitely be missed. Absolutely, he will. Now, Graham Ruthven, um, sometimes U.S. soccer feels like a bit of a bubble in a, in a small community. But the outpouring we've seen t today um, and over the last few hours for Grant has shown his presence was felt 
so much wider. We've seen tributes yeah. from LeBron James and Billie Jean King and all, all these kind of people whose lives he clearly touched. Indeed, and I was discussing it with some of my Scottish football pals this morning when I worked at, at Scottish t- TV. Grant was kind enough to give us his time a, a, a couple on a couple of occasions when the US were playing Scotland or, or whatever. And so that, that grief was kind of even felt by pe- people who knew him peripheral, peripherally or who'd only spoken to him once or twice. And I personally won't pretend to have known him that well, but I did meet him a couple of times and we did have interactions. And I think that's related to why this has been so upsetting. It didn't matter if you were a teenage blogger starting out as, as I was, Grant would treat you as an equal. And so many people have so many fond memories of Grant because he kept in touch with everyone and, and he couldn't do enough to help. He helped us promote the, the live show we did in, in Brooklyn. Um, I, I, I was looking through our, our DMs this, this morning um, and I found an exchange from a few years ago when he was still at Sports Illustrated. I'd completely forgotten about this. So he'd done a documentary on Icelandic football and, and, and I thought it was great. And I was talking to him about the, the cinematography in it. And, and at that time, I was producing short documentaries for a company. And very quickly, he was he was putting me in touch with the, the guy who'd helped him. So for starters, he was selfless in that he was giving someone else praise. And then sec- secondly, he was offering up all sorts of help. And I used some of that help. I got in touch with, with his colleague. And my next video was so much better in ter- terms of how it had been filmed. And without even prompting, Grant was back in the DMs after he'd seen it to say how it looked great. And as I say, I'd, I'd kind of completely forgotten about that until I went back today. And there was there was a few examples like that where he'd been in touch to say something I'd done had, you know, he'd, he'd enjoyed reading it or, or something like that. And 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 that's that's what he was like. And 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 he was a great journalist. And I think that's that's a, a worthwhile distinction as well because yes, he he covered soccer, but there was always a humid humid human interest mm-hmm. in at the core of his journalism. He looked at the full story and that included covering the, the plight of migrant workers in, in Qatar, which he covered at length during this tournament. So yes, absolutely agree he will be missed as a, as a, as a character and a person and a human primarily, but he his work will also be missed. Yeah, definitely so. And I, I was just recalling, Graham, just last week when we were all in Brooklyn together, I, I was talking about how much he helped me in my career when I was first starting out. And I've written on, on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. That is not a sale at this point. I'm just telling you there's a tribute there, which is not paywalled, which where I've wrote about some of the things he did to help me as well. And it's just been incredible. I, I thought, wow, he, he, he must have taken a shine to me. But yes, he did. But also, he just helped everybody. He was just so selfless, yeah. basically. So it was incredible the way he did that kind of thing. And I, I, I'm going to say something slightly strange here. And there's one thing that kind of gives me comfort in the whole situation. And, it, and it's the situation came about in a stadium, which in many ways is the best possible place to get immediate medical attention. And I say this because um, my dad had a heart attack um, hours after he was in a stadium and he was on his own. And I always wonder if it was different, if it was a few hours earlier, it would have been different. So part of me thinks I'm, that's one of the good play, the sort of silver linings. This whole situation. I'm sorry if I'm not articulating myself no, very well. No, I, I understand you, man. And like the idea of of at the obviously it didn't end up being successful, but the idea of of him being able to get immediate care and being surrounded by people who he's covered the game with for many years. Uh, I know a few of the guys that were there when it happened, and it sounds like it was pretty terrifying and pretty rattling, but also 
for him, if, if you can't be with your family, uh, since they're in the States, to have people around you who you know and trust and you know are looking out for you, I, I, I hope that was a source of comfort um, or, or could have been a source of comfort. And I hear you, Ryan. I think I think that is, I, I, I guess, a, a good way to look at it if that's if such a thing is possible. It feels really weird to be talking about it in, in him in past tense because uh, he's just, like I said, he's just a person who... I thought would be here and be involved in U.S. soccer for, for forever. And and to emphasize what you guys are talking about, I, I looked at uh, my text messages with him, and, and one of like uh, the more recent ones, it'd been a while, but one of the more recent ones was him texting out of nowhere to ask, like, is Ryan moving to Italy? Is everything okay? Like that was when, when Ryan had first moved and just checking in to make sure that Ryan was doing all right. So I think like it wasn't just soccer stuff. It wasn't just, you know, uh, tactics or goals or whatever. It was human stuff that yeah. I think – like pulled him into the sport and pulled people to him and made him keep doing what he did. And, and uh, the world is a sadder place without him. Uh, soccer coverage in this country will be different without him. And it will just be, I think it'll be really emotional the next U S game when there's a press conference and he's not there. And I'm sure U S soccer will do stuff to commemorate him. I hope U S uh, press people do things to commemorate him. I'm assuming they will because they're a good group of guys. Uh, well, good group of people, I should say. And and I just think that's what he would want in the end is for people to keep writing about the sport, keep caring about it, but keep caring about each other. And I think that's really all you can do at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the piece I wrote on, on the Patreon, I'd like to read out the last couple sentences. I said, there's so much to admire about Grant's work from his outstanding writing to his fearlessness in raising awareness of important topics. But if we can learn anything from Grant, it's in the way you should treat other people. His kindness, humility, generosity and respect will live on in everyone whose lives he's touched. So we offer our condolences to his friends, his family and everybody who loved him. And Joe Lowry, um, by the way, is not on the show today, did ask to pass on his sincere condolences as well. We did debate maybe not doing this show today, but we want mm -hmm. to carry on because soccer is what brings us together after all, right? And we hope that soccer is something that can provide us with some happiness at this time and for happiness for the people in our community who might be feeling sad. So if it's all right, we'll, mm. um, we'll press on and we'll talk about the World Cup quarterfinals that happened on this Saturday. So England won, France two. Oh boy. Chiuameni with a long ranger to kick this one off. Harry Kane uh, with a penalty after Bukayo Saka was brought down for... One of six million times, I believe, during this game. Uh, Olivier Giroud putting in the French 2-1 ahead. And Harry Kane missing a penalty against the person he takes shots against every single day of the year in training. Graham, <sighs> um, England usually lose on penalties. England lost on penalty tonight. My mm -hmm. question to you is, why can't I have nice things? <laughs> Yeah, Eng England uh, cut to the chase tonight and and, and evaded extra, the pain of extra time and just got straight to missing that crucial penalty kick that knocks them out of the World Cup. Um, I think they'll certainly feel aggrieved after this one because my personal feeling, and I think a lot of people share this now, is that the winner of the World Cup will come from this match. And if England win it, the opportunity is even better than the one that they had in, in, in 2018. You have Morocco and Croatia in the final four already. And then Argentina, who are a good team, but I don't think they're as good as the France team that won the tournament in, in 2018. So England, it was there for them. They were very much in this match. 
I didn't think their first half performance was as good as many thought. I will, I'll explain a little bit more about that later on. But they were certainly good in the second half and maybe even maybe even edged it on the whole in terms of the the balance of the of the match. But as for France, they're just so good at winning these matches. Um, it is a different France team to the one that that won in Russia, in that they do play a more open game. You can get at them more easily, I think, but. It really feels like they have evolved at this tournament, and I think they are now the team to beat at this World Cup. Yeah, I, I agree, Graham. And this is not meant to like do a disservice to England or as a shot at England, but I saw somebody tweet that like it still feels like France haven't really gotten out of third gear at any game in this tournament, and I sort of think that's the case. I felt like they were not really at the races for a huge chunk of the second half, and then they get that goal, and then they kind of... Uh, like play the game they need to play to get that result. Again, not taking shots at them because I think their first half was really fascinating in the way they came out and the way they they frustrated England and baited England uh, a, a couple different times. But I think from an England perspective, the way that they were able to kind of ride that first half, then be so aggressive and so dominant, I think, in the second half, we've seen England teams crash out because they were tepid, because they were hesitant, because they just couldn't get it together. They couldn't like figure out the problem with their team or unlock a defense. And this wasn't that. This was a team that fought for everything, played a really physical game, uh, I think adapted to the game as needed when the ref clearly was letting stuff go and, and not really enforcing certain things. And, and I think... I'm not the first to point this out, but watching teenage Jude Bellingham directing players and organizing and interacting with the official and interacting with other players, like if that doesn't hearten you as an England fan, I'm not sure if there's anything that will, because that that man is very clearly the future of of that national team. And, and I think in his hands, you are in good hands. So there is that. There's much else to be said. But uh, Ryan, I know it was... A, a very strange, very difficult, and ultimately very not fun day for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but like, and I wanted you know to write jokes and take shots, but it it doesn't that doesn't even feel fun because it wasn't a like a fun bad England performance. It was just it was a game that I genuinely wanted to go to extra time because it was fun and back and forth, and it really opened up in that second half. and And I think it was one of my favorite games of the tournament so far. I think yeah, I'm inclined to agree, Taylor. And I thought I'd be feeling really down about this result, but. I generally was pretty happy with the England performance here. There were a couple of very good chances. You know, Harry Maguire hitting the post with a shot. Jude Bellingham having that superb volley uh, tipped over. A penalty, which was sent um, NFL style over the crossbar, which was very unfortunate. And those would have been key difference makers to send it to extra time or possibly for, for an England win there. And you could see what France was doing. They're very happy to let England have the ball. And they were very good at offering very little space in their own final third. But England although they're a bit negative, I thought responded very well to that opening goal, generally uh, kept a very good shape, generally were very good at defending. I mean, everyone was worried about Kylian Mbappe going into this game, but he was thoroughly contained. I felt like Bukayo Saka was playing the role of Kylian Mbappe in this game in many ways. He was the the one who was free on, on the right-hand side up there. Very, very impressive stuff from him. And it was Bellingham, you know, going deep, lots of um, defending there, and Saka doing the same thing, dropping back when he needed to. Um, and, and Bellingham doing a really jo- a good job of um, staying on Griezmann wherever possible. Every, everything going through Saka there on that side as well. I, I was just really pleased with so many England performances in this one. And there was there was a mo- I think there was a moment in about the fifteen minute when um, Rabiot was running through the middle and Kieran Tri- uh, Carl Walker, excuse me, had 
it looked like he was the closest player to Rabiot and was going to commit, but he didn't. He stayed wide. He stayed looking over his shoulder because he knew Mbappe was on his shoulder as well. And he didn't want to give Mbappe that, op- Mbappe that open option, so he cut off his space. And it was very impressive how when Walker would go through, Henderson would drop back and cover. I think we saw that a few minutes after that incident as well. So it was very well organised. I was very happy with generally most of the performances. I was very happy that it was a 4-3-3 and it was the same starting 11 as well. I was happy it wasn't a back five um, as as many feared it would be in this instance. But I mean, besides a penalty miss, which England fans are very, very used to and an, an appalling refereeing a bit, um, um, exhibition out there, which we can get to later. Graham, I don't think I can grumble at that performance. Now, when we spoke at half time, and I believe mm. on your social media, you use... Uh, you, you use quite strong terms to describe the England performance. Yeah. And I, it, it's amazing how we all watch the same game, but we see different things, isn't it? Depending on our biases, mm-hmm. depending on what we're looking for. And there's me sitting there thinking, that was really encouraging. And then I look on my feed and, you know, there's that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was very wary of my own personal bias when I was making that assessment. But, yeah, I do. I, I agree with everything you said there with regards to the second half. I thought England were very good in the second half and and particularly around about 55 minutes. It's actually about two or three minutes before they scored the equaliser. It felt like England were turning the screw and I'll, I'll maybe explain what I thought the difference was. But I did think the first half was was pretty poor and I was watching the, the, the obviously the, the British coverage here. And it's not often that I agree with uh, Roy Keane and Lee Dixon and, and the ITV pundits, but they were kind of echoing a lot of... of the things I thought were were a problem for England in that first half. And they got caught um, in the one way. For the goal, they got caught in the one way they, they set up not to get caught in, down that right side. And, and the fear of Mbappe kind of informed their entire first half performance because you had, for me, you had no progression out, out from the back. How many times did we see Stones or Maguire or Henderson with the ball 35 yards out from their own goal, looking for a pass, turning back, playing it laterally, and you also had in the first half Saka not being bold enough on the ball because he was fearful of leaving Walker one-on-one against Mbappe. Hmm. I'll, I'll come on to Saka. He totally turned around the second half before anyone jumps in there. But it, it resulted in England having this game state advantage where France were 1-0 up, where England have loads of the ball. But that was the, the way France wanted it at that stage. And then when it was turned over, Declan Rice seemed to be left as a one-man barrier. And there were a few times when it felt like he was hanging on for dear life when Mbappe and Dembele and Griezmann were all running at him and in terms of the Chiumeni goal it was a sensational strike and the way he drifts into that area of the pitch showed a a kind of real appreciation of where the space would open up as France attacked in transition but it comes from Walker getting high and there being a turnover the unfortunate thing for England was until that moment Walker had actually been staying central with Henderson pushing out right in possession but the first time that they swapped there's a turnover and France get forward down that down that side through Mbappe and that unsettled the English defensive shape where which then created the space for Chiumeni and then that fear of Mbappe and I do think for the rest of the first half they kind of did a reasonable job of closing Mbappe down but it kind of as I said it shaped all, their, their whole performance for the rest of that first half and I couldn't really at half time I couldn't really tell you what England were doing all that well, besides maybe closing, uh, keeping Mbappe quiet for 30 minutes after he'd played a key role in the goal. So he'd still had a major contribution. There was, however, just to be quick about this, there was, however, a notable change from England in the second half. So Walker started to progress past hey, the halfway line. Graham, attacking. Can, we, wait, can, we, can we stay on the first half, do you mind, before we get into the second half changes? 
sure, no problem. J- j- just because like, I, I, I want to go back to some of that stuff because I, I think I'm with Ryan on this one. And I do want to talk about the second half, but with the first half, I think a few things for me, though. Uh, I, I do think in, that, in the goal, I am very much of the opinion that Saka is fouled. And I think that should have been given as a foul. And I, and I think right there, that stops that goal from happening. I, I also agree with you, though, that once it's not given, uh, England do sort of hurt themselves there because you have uh, there is a like diffusion of responsibility of sorts. If I think everybody sees, oh, it's Jordan Henderson on killing Mbappe. That's not good. And I think it ends up being Kyle Walker and maybe Jude Bellingham are all trying to handle Mbappe. And it's a thing we've talked about previously with Lionel Messi, that one-on-one, you don't really want that with Messi, but it's almost as dangerous to have three people sort of half defending him because in that, there's a diffusion of responsibility and you have to make that player foul him. Otherwise, it gives them room to operate. And I feel like three people closing on Mbappe, but nobody actually being the one to close him down, gave him that little gap to get through and then he's able to find Chuomeni. And I think because he gets through, England... It felt to me their plan for if we do get uh, caught on the counter, everybody just get back. Everybody get behind the ball. Everybody get in the box. And England had, I think, eight outfield players in the 18 when that ball goes to Chuomeni. And then I think there's a realization of, oh, no, we have left way too much space and he's able to finish it. So I I hear what you're saying with some of that. But I also think through the middle, I I tweeted about this. It felt to me like France wanted England to try to play through the middle because that was where they were stepping and were pressing and were being aggressive and trying to win the ball back and then countering basically when England were open and kind of slow. So in some way, I hear what you're saying. Just in some ways to me, it's impressive that England didn't take that bait over and over again, didn't shoot themselves in the foot, kind of stayed with their game, stayed steady. You're right, didn't create many chances, didn't really cause France that many problems, but I think it gave them the cushion even one nil down to go in at halftime and, and kind of make those adjustments. So that's where I was a little bit more positive. But now I would love to hear more about what you saw in the second half. Yeah, so the, the second half, I've only got kind of a couple thoughts on what changed. So Walker started to progress um, beyond the halfway line when England were in possession, when they were attacking. But he was he was kind of staying central to, pre- to prevent getting into a foot race with Mbappe. It still happened once, and it was maybe my favourite moment in the whole match when, when that happened. The, oh, yeah. The, 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 the track meet down that, down that side, and Mbappe, Mbappe won. <laughs> um, but then you had... Saka, what that meant was Saka, Saka wasn't isolated. Um, and actually, it felt like he was pretty emboldened. And there was a moment at the, at the end of the first half where Jordan Henderson kind of just looks at Bakayo Saka and he doesn't actually say much at all. He just kind of gives him like a like a clenched fist. And, in, and it's one of those footballing gestures you kind of know what that means, which is basically just be a little bit bolder and 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 take people on and do what you normally do. And obviously he's getting kicked quite a lot by the French players. But in the second half, it felt like he did that. And not just him, it felt like Foden was starting to attack the central space where Chouamene and Rabiot and Upamecano in particular didn't know how, who had the responsibility for covering that space. And in the first half, Foden was hugging the touchline a little bit too much. And it just felt like that gave the England attack better balance, Kane was dropping deep in the first half, but he was getting crowded out when he was doing that. But he played much more as kind of a focal point. And in the second half, you had Foden and, and, and Saka kind of buzzing around him. And it just felt like England, through those two or three subtle changes, really took a grip of the game. And the real point where 
it kind of twigged for me that England did have an advantage in this game. It's when it goes to 1-1, so you don't have the game state advantage factor anymore because that was a big factor in the first half when people are saying England are in control of this game. I'm, I'm saying, yeah, but this is this is what France want you to do. They're 1-0 up. This is, the, this is the game state they want. When it goes 1-1, that disappears and England are still the ones probing. They're still the ones pressing. They look the most dangerous in the final third. So England did turn it around. But I think on the balance, I've seen a lot of people saying England were clearly the best team and, and so on. I, I don't fully agree with that. Maybe they did edge over 90 minutes, but I thought France were wiser in this match than maybe many people are giving them credit for. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dig into that a little more. We'll talk about um, some of the penalties maybe and um, and that man in the middle who was, uh, you know, doing some officiating allegedly. Back shortly. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Um, Taylor, Hmm. once again, I approach this game with bias and I admit that. Uh, I believe it was 16, no, 14 fouls called for France in this game. And it felt like there was an awful lot more. Was it just me or was it part of the game plan to put lots of niggly fouls on players like Saka and to break up play as much as possible? And that just played into um, some unfortunate refereeing decisions in my view. Oh, was two penalties not enough? <laughs> I th- the third would have been nice when there was a VAR decision that somehow went against it as well. Yeah, yeah. What, the keen one that was outside the box? Yeah, that's that. That's the thing there. I watched that one at halftime a bunch of different times from the different angles provided. And I do think at the end of the day, uh, because he wins the ball, it's not as though he steps across and then there's contact. I don't even know if he's necessarily looking for contact or a penalty. It's just that I think that contact occurs just outside the box. And if there's persistent infringement that carries into the box even if it starts outside then you can give a penalty there but I think if there's just contact outside of the box then it would have been a free kick but I don't think VAR can go back and award a free kick so I agree with Graham probably not a penalty uh but I would also say it may have been part of France's game plan I felt like Teo Hernandez especially was letting people know that he was there in a very aggressive way and ultimately that comes back to haunt him but I think this was a game where the referee set the tone and then kept letting that be the tone and normally Taylor, when what's the tone? I like France. <laughs> no, I mean, I, no, because I think I think England, and that's part of where I think England sort of adjusted and showed their maturity that they were sort of like, oh, okay, it's a street fight, then it will be a street fight. And I think they gave they gave as good as they got, especially in the second half. But I think it, it's it's part of being a crafty veteran team. It's it's why there was concern about how young the United States is. Is you have to know how to handle those moments in a World Cup when the other team is sort of knowing how to play physical and and working within the bounds that the referee has established. And so I think it, England or France were doing a much better job of sort of playing physical, but then continuing on with their play and not really stopping and complaining and not really getting in people's faces. And I think the ref was just letting stuff go and establish that precedent and then eventually had to kind of start handing out some cards and, and toning things down a little bit. Ryan, if anything, I saw a bunch of people frustrated that uh, he wasn't going to give the card to Teo Hernandez for the penalty and then two different England players were saying, no card, no card, no card. And then he gave the yellow card. So there were some complaints that England had talked him into a card. I am sort of questioning if that could have been a red card because right. to me, Teo Hernandez... Apparently oh, can't be because he's not in possession of the ball. Apparently. Is that why? Yeah. Okay. Because I was really... Because I know dog so uh, like it's, it's never going to be a red card anymore. But if you're not making a play on the ball, then that's where I could see it as being a red card. And Teo Hernandez 
I know he's saying shoulder to shoulder. It doesn't matter to me. He's just barging in, in, into so uh, stupid. Yeah, it, I don't know what he was doing. <laughs> That's what I mean where I say like it felt like he was just like, oh, we're hitting people. I will hit people. Yeah. Uh, so I don't even think it should have been a red. It was just a moment of like, could that have been? So Graham, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, but it feels like uh, like France sort of uh, rolled with that a little bit better at first, and then England adjusted to it as the game went on. To jump back to my beef with the referee, on that particular instance, Taylor, Teo Hernandez puts an NFL tackle on Mason Mount, and the referee is less than 10 yards away from it, looking at it. (laughs) Teo Hernandez is not even looking at the ball. We know what kind of foul that is. He decides, nothing wrong with that. Rub some dirt in it, Ryan. Rub some dirt in it. That's what I have to say to you. But, like, are we not going to question that kind of integrity that I, I, okay okay i'm gonna get over that i'm gonna get over that That's <laughs> question england that kind got of two penalties in this yeah. game and the yellow card shown to Maguire in the 90th minute was england's first booking of the entire tournament and they're complaining about referees A squeaky claim that's right you're quite right graham <laughs> so graham before the break you you said that france would have been a team but england edged it over 90 minutes so i didn't get a no, clear wiser, idea wiser okay so who was who in your opinion who was the better team in this game I mean, it d- depends what your dis- your definition is, but in terms of say it, chance creation say it. and chance creation and control, I'm just about to say it. In, chance, mean, in terms of chance creation and control, it's England. Um, so their their expected goals, I think, was something like two point seven. Obviously, they have two penalties, so that helps in that regards. But nonetheless, it did particularly in the second half. It felt like they were the more threatening team. Um, obviously, you have the two France goals, but beyond that, I can't really think of another good France opportunity. Um, I think Pickford made a good save at some point. I can't uh, remember right that before the from. Giroud goal, Giroud has a volley that Pickford saves. That yeah. was pretty. That was pretty good. Honestly, I would go the other way. I, I don't really, with with certain exceptions, I never loved the Arsene Wenger. We were the better team. It just didn't go our way. We were the much better team. We should have won. Should have has nothing to do with it. You win or you don't. And so I think I think France were the more impressive team overall. I think England played more cohesively as the game went on and we're ultimately playing more as a team and I think France were relying on their individuals but I also think that's what's gotten France to this point and like I I understand that the pundits were criticizing England for being like overly focused on Mbappe and really worried about Mbappe and kind of adjusting their game plan to nullify him but also like that's what we said they had to do because he is such a next level player that to some extent I feel like England doing all that they did to make sure that Mbappe didn't have an oversized performance is very impressive, but it still means that France were sort of executing the game plan that they wanted to execute, especially in that first half. And I think as much as we sort of talk about France, like sitting off and then just countering and they've got these next level players, Deschamps did smart things. He continues to use Antoine Griezmann very, very wisely. And I thought his positioning was such a difference maker because especially in the first half, in in the early stages of the first half, he would, drift over to the right, and there would be this consistent overload with uh, Griezmann and Dembele. Uh, and then if, if England tried to kind of like pull full Foden back to help out with that, suddenly you lose an attacker there. And then the other thing that I think France did to really com- compound England's problems was that Teo Hernandez, who I expected to be sort of bombing down that left wing and and overloading with Kylian Mbappe or letting Kylian Mbappe move inside, for the first 20 minutes, he keeps moving into the center of midfield and Saka, who's tracking him, now has to go with him. And Saka is then playing reactionary defensive soccer, but is also basically clearing out that entire side for Kylian Mbappe to run down. And so I think 
France did things to like manipulate England's shape and pull them out of position. As I said, it felt to me like they were baiting them into trying to play through the middle and then pouncing, and that was when France would press. And so I, I thought all of that was pretty clever from Deschamps, and then I think it's a credit to England. Maybe also France back off a little bit, aren't, aren't trying to be as open. But in the second half, it's the opposite. It's Teo Hernandez trying to handle uh, Saka the whole half. And, 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 to, and I think one of maybe the mistakes Southgate makes is taking off Saka because I thought he was yeah. such an electric Huge attacker mistake. and player. Yeah, I mean, I know this tournament has been the tournament of the big lads and, and you know, England may be going slightly more direct by taking Saka, ho- Saka off leans into that. But he was doing so much damage at that time of the game. And, and in, the, in that phase of the match, it felt like England had France on the ropes and, and in particular, Saka had, had France on the ropes. So that change that, that takes place 10 minutes from the end with Mount and, and, and Sterling coming on, for for Henderson and Saka, I don't really have it much of an issue with Henderson coming coming off, even though I don't think he had a terrible game. But Saka coming off in that phase just after France have scored a second goal to go ahead, I'm not totally sure what the thinking was there because, it, it, as I say, it very much felt like that that ploy of playing him more centrally and having him attack the central space where France weren't really sure who was picking him up or what 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 space to cover. It was very much working, so I think Southgate will regret that one in hindsight. Taylor, you know that moment in The Simpsons where Homer's at the nuclear power plant and Lenny and all the gang around the corner saying, he's about to do something stupid. I felt like that was <laughs> us watching uh, Upa Meccano during this oh, game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, who, he, he, was yeah. A da- he didn't get a yellow card in the, end, in the end in this game, but he was a danger man, wasn't he? Uh, yes, he was. And for a moment, I thought he was the one who concedes the, the, the foul. It, it's Giovanni in the end, and that felt like a weird balance to his first half. But for a moment, I thought it was Zippo Meccano, and, and it came good that we thought, yeah, he's going to do something else, because he has that moment where he gets turned by Harry Kane, and he was playing very man-oriented on Harry Kane. He was trying to, to out-muscle him, outwork him, just always be that sort of hassling presence. And Kane is a very clever attacker and oftentimes used that to his advantage and would sort of like do a little bit of a I forget which which martial art it is where you use your opponent is it judo that you use your like opponents like movements against them but that felt like what he was doing because he has that turn and then almost gets on that loose ball uh, that Larice is off his line to handle but I thought Harry Kane handled that well and it did seem like Makano was destined for a mistake he doesn't end up making one yeah. and if anything uh, deserves a ton of credit for France's first goal because he carries that ball forward sixty yards of course after fouling Saka but still um, <laughs> but but I also while we're while we're praising individuals or criticizing individuals. As I guess I was just doing with Upa Meccano. I want to spotlight Harry Kane for a second because I thought this was I'm, I'm, I'm not really an England fan. I'm not a Harry Kane fan. I am gutted for that penalty miss because he went from I wrote this in the notes. It feels kind of cliche, but he wrote from like a goat moment of like he scores two penalties. He's this incredible player for England. And now he misses the one and England are out. And it's not his fault, certainly, but I'm sure he will be feeling like it's his fault. And and I just thought those two penalties aside, the one he scores, the one he doesn't, he just was such an important player. The, what, there's a moment in the first half where he is, I have three notes. It's the the penalty shout that wasn't given. Then he has the smash from like 25 yards out that Yuri's barely gets to and pushes wide for a corner. And then three minutes after that, he is 35 yards from his own goal, winning a 50-50 and getting fouled. Like he was all over the place for England and he was so important to them. It's just it's it has to be heartbreaking that that's the way this World Cup ends for him is missing that penalty and you could see it. I think it was Bellingham who tried to pick him back up afterwards, but you could just see the sort of shell shocked expression. I also want to ask you guys: Is that the longest 
pause between the whistle blowing and a penalty being taken, both of those penalties took so long for he resets the first one and yeah. backs up and he looked nervous and then he buries mm. that first one. And if anything, I feel like learned the wrong lesson and for the second one tries to hit it even harder. And I think when it's like golf, when you overswing as hard as you can, you end up sacrificing form. And it felt like he his plant foot. I watched it was was fine. It didn't slip. It was nothing like that. I think he just loses form and opens his hips up and skies that penalty. Ryan, I, I have a fairly brutal joke I saw for you if you'd like to hear it. Otherwise, we can just keep it moving. Go on. Uh, <laughs> it might not be coming home, but Harry Kane's penalty is halfway there. Does that oh, help? Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. I think Harry Kane's penalty is in Dubai. But no. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it was interesting. I was wondering about that dynamic, Taylor, that I mentioned earlier on about the fact that they're teammates and they, he, he will have taken many penalties against Hugo Lloris. He will know exactly all of his traits and vice versa. Hugo Lloris mm. will know what Harry Kane's up to. So I wondered if there was a, an element of psychology in there, the delay with the resetting the ball, with the checking your socks, with the staring into space for 10 seconds or so. I, I haven't got any answers to these questions, yeah. but I wondered because it's not often in those circumstances you get two players who know each other so well. So, no, and and I think Yuritz goes the wrong way for the first one, and the graphic that was shown of, of all of Kane's takes, that is definitely the dominant spot where he puts the ball, where he puts it for the first one. Yuritz goes that way for the second one, and and I'm and that's where I think Harry Kane tries to go. I think down the middle is what he was going for. Mm-hmm. A Panenka would have served him a little bit better there. Uh, again, just a... a a very sad moment because he he felt like it felt like this could be a potential like his tournament basically yep. and now and now I think what will be remembered is him missing that penalty skying it over the jokes about England still finding a way to lose on penalties even if it doesn't go to penalties and it sucks because th- there were opportunities there and and England England did look like the better team for big chunks of that second half and looked like a team that could cause this France team problems and and it's it's like Ivan Drago getting cut and bleeding in Rocky Four. it was sort of this like oh they're not a machine they're men <laughs> like you can play <laughs> through them you can make things happen yeah and then in the end uh Olivier Giroud does Olivier Giroud things that ball from Griezmann is insanity because he is clearly aiming for Griezmann but he bends it like he bends it perfectly so that Pickford can't come he puts it over John Stones but also away from him that he can't really disrupt the flow of it or get in in Giroud's eyeline he puts it in a way that Giroud doesn't have to back into Harry Maguire he doesn't have to lose momentum he can sort of hold his ground and then attack the ball it is an incredible ball from Antoine Griezmann and a great great finish from Olivier Giroud who many people have pointed out probably wouldn't have been at this tournament if Benzema were healthy and maybe Conte maybe Pogba who knows uh, but a great finish from him and an even better finish from Chuameni for the opener who I thought was exceptional again except for that penalty that's really the ma- major blemish on his performance but otherwise Chuameni has been rock solid for France this whole tournament. Yeah, you're right to point out that Griezmann cross being absolutely spot on as well. If only uh, me- all of England's Countless crosses in the second half could have been half as good as that one. I know we're going long. I will say, maybe to transition us to the next game, at the very least, England looked like they had a plan and they had belief and they weren't just chickens with their heads cut off panicking Mm. the way Portugal looked for most of that second half today. So if nothing else, at least England mounted a sustained battle as opposed to just, I don't know, hoof it long in the box and see what happens. They did plenty of that too, but at least they got into decent enough positions and not launching balls in from midfield. There you go. Small victories in... A massive loss. Uh, Thank you very much, Taylor. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll go into that uh, surprising victory for Morocco. Back shortly. 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Morocco won, Portugal nil. Yusuf and Nesri getting the goal there, sending Cristiano Ronaldo down the tunnel in tears, possibly for the last time in a Portugal shirt. Yes, indeed. Uh, Morocco, they're the first ever African team to make the World Cup semis. Um, and it's great, it's kind of, I don't want to be dismissive of CAF or anything, but with the hegemony of European teams and the relative investment in European soccer, it's quite incredible that Morocco have achieved this. We've got to give them props for it. Yeah, giving them credit, I don't think is uh, is is you know unacceptable or anything like that. Where I think it's it, it's it's been long overdue for an African team that they would that they would make the semi-finals of a World Cup. Um, you look at some of the the great teams that they've had in the past and the, and the, and the great players. For me, I always think back to that Ivory Coast kind of golden generation and, oh, yeah. and the fact that they didn't really do all that much at a World Cup was disappointing to me. If you told me before the start of this tournament that it, it would happen in 2022 at this World Cup, I would have thought Senegal would have been the ones to do it, certainly before Sadio Mane gets injured. Um, Morocco, is, they were not at the top of my list in that regard, but they deserve their, their, their place in, in the final four. They've conceded just one goal in five matches at, at this tournament, and that one goal was an own goal yep. against Canada. They've kept out Belgium, Croatia, Spain, and Portugal, which is just ridiculous that they've done that. And and that defensive strength has been the basis for their, their success. But they are um, kind of looking beyond the defensive strength. They are a, sh a sharp and smart team in, in playing out from the back. Their counter-attack is the, the best at this tournament for me. Um, I know France, you know, you could argue Mbappe, what he does as a counter-attack, but in terms of a true counter-attack of playing out from the back, Morocco are something special. And um, if only they didn't get a case of the brain scramblies every time they get into the box, hmm. um, they would have they would have won this game by more than one goal. Um, but fortunately for them, Diogo Costa also had that affliction for in the series goal, and 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 then that was enough for Morocco. And they were uh, coming into today one of only two sides that had yet to go behind in this tournament. Now they're the only one because the other one was England. So sorry, Ryan, uh, not to drag you again, but yeah, it, it's amazing what Morocco have done. Uh, They've, I think they've only allowed it's like nine shots on target, I think it is, and they've kept four clean sheets. As Graham said, they've only allowed the one goal, and that was an own goal. It is it is wild how good they have been, and a huge part of that, as it is the case in this game, owes to the defense and the way they set up and how disciplined they can be, how much they know their roles, how they fill space if someone does get caught out, but also, as the commentators talked about a bunch, how Amrabat refuses to get pulled out. Like, I think at most he gets pulled out like a couple yards and then he immediately goes back. He he just does such a good job of the, on the defensive side, and I'm sure we'll talk much more about how they defend. But uh, a point that, that I, I felt like compelled to talk about, Graham, I know you too, is also just how strong they are in the attack and especially on the counter, how quickly they can punish you and how good they are technically when they want to open up and play there's a moment i had it in the notes i think it's like the 73rd minute or something like that when they have that counterattack down the line and it was it looked like france counterattacking the way it's just one and two touch passing it's quick combinations it's a big switch across and it it could have easily been another goal for them they could have had two or three in this game with the way portugal were sort of opening up at the end and i i think we we justifiably rightfully give credit to their defensive side but i think also the way they've yeah. uh, taken their attacking attacking chances and created those attacking chances is pretty exceptional as well. Yeah, so the, the speed and the accuracy 
with which Morocco play out from the back is incredible. And and there's loads to like about this team, but that that is the headline strength. For me, that's the thing that makes them special at this tournament. So all the stats point to the defensive stuff, stuff and obviously that's the foundation. But there's there's no better team at playing that first pass to break the lines than Morocco at this tournament. They do it over and over again. And it doesn't really matter the level of counter-pressing from the opposition team. I mean, they beat Spain in the last round. They beat Portugal, who are decent in in, in that regard as well, in in, in this round. And they started to tire in the second half, and that's when they shift to the back five to provide a little bit more security. But they still had those breaks every so often, maybe not as as frequently as in the first half, but they still had it in them to to play in that way. And if it wasn't for uh, Kadira having a, a bit of a... A disaster class, not just in this match. I thought I think I said similar about him after the Spain game as well. So he gets sent off moments after he complete uh, he mm. completely wasted a, a, a counter attack where I think it's uh, o- o- Onani down the left side, and if he leaves it, then Morocco are away. But he's offside, and he comes across, and Onani kind of shouts at him. So that happens, and then two minutes later, he gets sent off for a second uh, a second yellow card. So not a great game for him, but. I have come to kind of really love and appreciate this Morocco team. I didn't expect it before the start of the tournament. It took me a while to to grow that appreciation because I remember the Morocco nil, Croatia nil game, mm-hmm. their first match of this tournament, which I still think was the worst match of this of this whole World Cup so far. And to think both of those teams are now in the semi-finals of this World Cup could is quite the incredible. Final, baby. That could be, final. Final. Could be the final. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that doesn't actually fill me with much enthusiasm <laughs> if we get a repeat of that game. But nonetheless, I have come to love Morocco. There's so many things to like about them. Just their their spirit, the mm-hmm. way they celebrate games. I mean, Bufal celebrating with his mum on the pitch at full time was very wholesome and, and, and very enjoyable. Um, they've got a, a great support in Qatar as well, even though there's a lot of empty seats for the first half of of, uh, of this game, but they did fill up by about half time. And yeah, I think I might be a Morocco fan at this point. There you go, man. And, and I'm guessing we're both fans of Unahi as well. You mentioned him there. I, like I, the, the commentary team in the game I was watching or the feed I was watching were just constantly praising him, how calm he was on the ball. And, and you need that. Certainly just to have a person who can who can make plays and find those passes. But also, if you are Morocco and you are uh, defending, especially there at the end, like defending for your life, to have a person who can not panic, not just hoof it up, but control it, like ride a challenge, evade a challenge, and then carry it forward or split two defenders and play a ball into someone's feet. You just need that poise and that vision to just let go some of the tension to ratchet things down to frustrate Portugal. And I think the defensive side of things definitely frustrated Portugal. But when you are pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to get that, that equalizer or that winner, if it like, if, if is the case, sometimes looking at the Dutch against Argentina, for example, they just were unrelenting and kept putting Argentina under pressure to the point where they capitulate and then capitulate again. But if you have somebody like Unahi who can, just open things up and give you that 30 second breather draw a foul and now you've got another 60 seconds killed not only does it give you the breather it disrupts that sort of momentum that Portugal are building and that was the thing that stood out to me uh is that especially as I was an avowed Portugal fan a lifelong Portugal fan sure they were going to win this world cup um that was I was I was honor bound to cheer for them uh and now I no longer am because I saw how frustrated they were getting and how much it was just breaking the machine down every single time and they kept having to build it back up and then a different Moroccan player would make a smart play or Unahi would get on the ball again. And I just think having a player like him, a player like Amrabat, 
makes such a massive difference when you are yeah. fighting for your life. I'll be completely honest. I had never heard of Onani Nor until a few I. weeks ago. <laughs> I, and I didn't think that could happen in 2022. Not that there'd be a player I haven't heard of, but that you would, you would go into a World Cup and have a shining star for a team that makes the semifinals and be a complete unknown. I, I kind of thought those, those days were over. And there'll be League One fans or maybe even Angers fans shouting at their, at their uh, earbuds or speakers or whatever because I think he's a key player for them. But nonetheless, for him to make that leap up to this level and play this way has been so enjoyable and, and, and pretty incredible. And then no what Masrawi, no Aguerd. Uh, you have Saïs come off with injury in this game. So three of, you, three of maybe your four or five best players either not playing in this game or having to come off injured, and they still find a way to win. I don't know what that semifinal against France is going to look like, but they are there, and that's all that matters, and I'm sure they will figure something out and have a very uh, defensive team that finds a way to frustrate France, and I'm mm. excited for that game. Uh, but now is the segment of the show in which I would like to eviscerate Portugal. Would anyone like to do that with me? <laughs> Yeah, I, sure. t- Taylor, I actually like, there's a word you used in our show notes, which is timid, mm. which I think mm. is a really good description of what Portugal were here, because, yes, they had a lot of chances they didn't convert, but it didn't feel like there was much urgency. Right. Mm. It, 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 yeah, it had that feel of, I think, similar to what I talked about with Brazil in their loss, that it was just that, like, we're, we won 6-1 to one last game. We're going to find a way through. Let's not yeah. get exposed. Let's so- not leave ourselves vulnerable. Let's just... Like, eventually, we'll figure something out. And I had said in my specific prediction that it would be off of a set piece. Lord knows they had their chances. And uh, I think they could have done better with them. They had a few design set pieces that don't quite come off. Bruno has the one for Joe Felix that is maybe six inches away from being an incredible design set piece. They, They could have taken their opportunities, but it just felt like they kept sort of eh, we'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there. And then suddenly in the second half, it's just full-on panic. It went from zero to 100, and it felt like they didn't really warm up or find a way to get to 100. They just were at that, and that meant they were just lumping in balls into the box and hoping that something happened, and what happened was they lost. Yeah, I mean, Fernando Santos, he basically went, my tactics are I've dropped Ronaldo again. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's surely going to be enough, and it turns out that that wasn't enough of a, a tactical approach. And <laughs> Um, I actually did. I feared he would come back into the team, so I was relieved to see him on the bench again. But Santos still managed to make some strange decisions for this game. So Ruben Neves coming back into the side was weird, given that Carvalho and Vitinha had both performed that position better than him at this at this tournament. And then the really frustrating one was the delay in introducing Rafael Leao when the match was crying out for him and. Morocco at that point, when they're in the back four, they're they're conceding the wide space to Portugal, which is they're basically banking on them staying compact and narrow and Portugal not being able to get through them. And which player at this World Cup is capable of making the most of a situation like that? Mr. Rafael Leao. It's what he does. And so what happens is that Morocco actually preemptively make a make a change to a back five. It's almost like they, they could they could sense that Leao was going to come on, but he comes on around 70 minutes, I think it is. And by that time, Morocco have, have moved into that back five. The space out wide um, isn't there anymore. And even in that situation, Leao was, was able, it felt like he was the one most likely to create something with his cross into the yep. box or beating a player. So why was he not on earlier? Why, when it became clear that was the pattern of the match, certainly after Morocco scored, why is he not on that pitch? Why is there not that recognition of where the, the, the space is. And, and so that was very frustrating. And then also moving Yao Felix higher up. 
in, in the pitch when his success, particularly in the last game, but his success at this tournament has actually been with him starting deeper and carrying the ball forward. Why wasn't he tasked with doing that in this match? Because it very much seemed that that would have helped Portugal play Morocco essentially at their own game, where Morocco were brilliant at carrying the ball through Portugal. Portugal have the players to do that to Morocco. And yeah, sure, maybe that would have opened things up. Maybe it would have been a basketball game at points. But Portugal needed to do something. They needed yeah. that. They needed to to open that match up, and they just didn't create anywhere near enough. Graham, uh, to, to double down on two things, let's go back to Rafael Leao for a moment. Uh, you said he came on around the 70th. He comes on the 69th minute, which is an important thing, because in the 70th minute, with his first touch, he draws a foul, uh, gets Dari yellow carded, and that's the free kick that Bruno plays to Felix that Felix can't quite get on the end of. But he, within a minute of coming on, he is going at a defender, drawing a foul, getting a yellow card for that player, and putting Morocco back, forcing them onto their heels. That's what he could have offered. I don't know why he doesn't start. I don't know why it takes him so long to get on the pitch. And that is yet another mistake from Fernando Santos. And then to your point about Jao Felix, the thing that I was sort of flabbergasted by, I understand what he was going for. At times in this game, uh, Portugal, you'll see them listed as a 4-3-3. It felt pretty early like they were more in a 4-2-3-1 when they attacked. And it would be Neves and Otavio deeper. And then some combination of Silva, Silva uh, Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes, and Jao Felix as that kind of attacking three with uh, Ramos ahead of them. And and it felt like what they were trying to do was have like Felix be central, but then he would go out left and Fernandes would come central. And then Fernandes would go out right and Bernardo Silva would move central. And all of that felt like it was designed to pull Morocco out, to make them step out and make them track runners. And it was just this weird moment. There's one moment, it's like the 35th minute, I think, when Jao Felix is on the left and goes running all the way to the other side. And it's just this like, ha-ha, now I'm over here. And like Amrabat just kind of like watches him go and then continues to hold space. And Portugal just lump it in. I think it goes out for a goal kick. And it's just like, guys, that ain't going to do it. You got to be a little bit more quick with your passing. You got to get one and two touch passes. You got to try to kind of probe and find opportunities not just sort of run around while you slowly work the ro- the ball around your back four and and i'm 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 kind of going back to what i said earlier but i just i cannot stress how much if you didn't watch this game that it's portugal clearly not wanting to leave themselves exposed not wanting to give up a, a, a silly goal and so they're moving it slowly they're picking their spots and then they give up a goal and they come out in the second half, and it is just like, we got to figure something out. And they don't. Uh, I looked at the numbers uh, for this one. Uh, Portugal had nine corners, 12 shots, three big chances, and an XG of 0.89. Uh, they really did not create opportunities in this one. The ones that they did, uh, despite having those 12 shots, were all very low percentage. I think the biggest one was oh pep or peppy or pepe whatever you're supposed to pep i guess is what we call him the, that header that he misses at the end had a 15 percent chance of being scored that was statistically portugal's best scoring opportunity ramos had one that was 11 percent joe felix had one that was 10 percent but they really didn't get any clear-cut opportunities uh, and and i went back and looked at their previous games and the last time they went behind in the first half in, in this sort of fashion was against Switzerland. They went 1-0 down, Seferovic uh, scoring in the first minute of that game in the Nations League, and it felt very similar. They had 20 shots in that one, 12 of them on target, an XG of 1.47, but they only create two big chances, and all of those uh, chances that they do have are all, again, very low XG, 
and it's another like I think it's a pep uh, missed header was the best opportunity of that game too. And so you can see there that they 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 try to create opportunities, but as the game goes on, they're just lumping it in and hoping if they're behind, if they're ahead or they're 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 tied, I think that is where they are most comfortable. They are very comfortable waiting and finding a way to make something happen at the end or trusting their big name players to make something happen. But when they go 1-0 down, it felt like they didn't really have any answers or any plan for that. It's the Mike Tyson quote, and in this case, they were not ready to get punched in the face. Uh, speaking of potentially getting punched in the face, Taylor, you mentioned the Pepe head, uh, miss. Uh, did you yeah. see the, I'm not sure which player it was, who kissed him on the back of the head yeah. straight afterwards. That's that's uh, that's petting the rattlesnake right there, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I would not do that because that man will uh, will do some stuff. Uh, yeah. Even with VAR, uh, he'll, he'll throw a headbutt in there, I think. Yeah, crazy stuff. And one, one other thing, um, anyone else confused by the shirt colors in this game? I was constantly, my brain kept tricking me as to which team was which. Did not like it. I did <laughs> yeah. not like it at all. Yeah. I, th- Watch who actually I, won this match. If I can take a shot at Fox for a moment, I, I know, how could I possibly? Their coverage has been superb. Um, they they won't put the, the color codes up with the, with the countries. And if anything, they put the flag of the country up. This has happened like six times now where the flag of the country is the home jersey, but not the color they're wearing. And it makes it even more confusing. Serbia, they kept doing that. They kept putting up like a very, like the white part of the flag seemed to be the most dominant one while they were wearing maroon. And and I wish they would just, it's it's what NBC does for Premier League games. They'll have that little like color guide next to the team name. So you know immediately if you're new to it or you're not sure what colors people are wearing, who the teams are. And at, this game was was the biggest one because they wear such similar colors. Morocco absolutely looked like they were Portugal in this game. Maybe that's what actually happened. Maybe we all think Morocco won, but it was actually Portugal secretly. All right, so our semifinals... <laughs> no, we're not our... going with that one? All right, fine. Yeah, uh, sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we uh, Morocco definitely won. That's what my notes say. I'm sticking with that, Taylor. Um, semifinals fine. are set. Argentina versus Croatia, of course. And then the following day on Wednesday, France taking on Morocco. Uh, Graham, how much are you looking forward to that Croatia-Morocco final? <laughs> on the basis of the match they've already played at this World Cup, I can't wait. It should be a, a thriller. Um, I am kind of, I am kind of split on what I want the outcome of those semi-finals to be, because because a, a Croatia Morocco final does clearly have a narrative, particularly on the on the Morocco side of things, that would be appealing to a Scottish football fan who would like to see the established order kind of upset and a smaller nation maybe even win the World Cup. It would be the biggest, it would be the closest we come to a Leicester City kind of World Cup triumph and that would be incredible. But there is a little bit of me that is it's upset that we've been robbed of some true heavyweight matches in this tournament. So Argentina-Croatia should really be Argentina-Brazil, which in, in, in that case would be not just for this tournament, but for going back decades, would be a legendary match that no matter what happens, even if that was nil-nil and went to penalties, you would talk about that game for years to come. And then obviously France-Morocco, you could argue even going back to the Spain game, maybe that's France-Spain and that that is a hugely interesting match. So maybe this is slightly elitist of me, but I kind of hope we get an Argentina-France final because... The last World Cup final in Russia felt like the most forgettable World Cup final in in my lifetime, certainly, because it was just so one-sided. France were clearly the better team, and they thumped Croatia in that game. And there's the risk that, especially if you get have one bigger nation playing a smaller nation in the final, that that happens again. And so I kind of want the heavyweight final. Messi versus the defending champions, I would settle for that. 
Um, I'm underdogs till I die. Taylor, how about you? Underdogs till I die, baby. Yeah, good, good. And I think there's kind of... I know we've seen these two teams play before. Obviously, that Taylor, upsets me that I'm now the elitist uh, snob, <laughs> the elite of this of this trio. Graham That's what snob. everybody calls you, Graham. Everybody yeah. knows Graham Ruffin, elitist snob. It's been said. Orange car, electric <laughs> only. Two socks. Yeah. Uh, ta- uh, uh, tackle shop barber. We're only <laughs> rubbing shoulders with Scotland's elite. We all know it. We all know it. Business class flights and um, gold gold chalice. I, I don't know if listeners actually saw that, uh, Graham will only drink iron brew out of a gold chalice. He mm. brought that with him, and you're mm. not allowed to touch it. You're not even allowed to look at it is kind of his rule. Yeah. Like, you can – yeah. ideally don't even think about it is, is kind of where Graham would like you to be on that one. It's actually made out of chocolate. It's like those chocolate coins uh, with a wrapper, the foil wrapper yeah. on it. <laughs> Graham's chocolate pimp cup is what it says on the outside of it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. That's the title of the episode. Yeah, that seems like a good place to stop. Uh, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your contributions for these games, for all games. We love you. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Uh, Commiserations to you for England not making it. Graham, congratulations to you for England not making it. (laughs) I've had to restrain myself. I know you you have. (laughs) Graham Rutherford, thank you very much for your relative restraint. We also love you. Thank you, Ryan Bailey, and commiserations to you as well. Thank you very much. And listener, of course, we love you very much too. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.